The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Chaos in the New World, a young gamer steps out of her comfort zone and into the real. Horror in the trenches of a reimagined world war with magic, and a hero goes to hell and back to stop the world from ending. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirad. Over the years, Bain Books has been proud to publish the best authors in the genre. Folks like David Drake, David Weber, and Lois McMaster Bujold, and more recently, writers like Larry Correa and Tim Powers. And of course, that is just the tip of the Bain iceberg. On today's podcast, Sean C.W. Korsgaard helps us welcome a new batch of science fiction and fantasy authors into the Bane fold. Some are relative newcomers, while others have made a name for themselves elsewhere. But there's one thing they share in common. All are gifted storytellers, and we are thrilled to be publishing their work. In just a moment, we'll join Sean, Gregory Frost, Mona Lisa Foster, Marisa Wolf, and Howard Andrew Jones. But first, the news. The April mass market paperbacks are in. Let's take a look. First up is 1637, The Coast of Chaos by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gore Huff. In an altered timeline, the American Coast of Chaos is set for explosion that may change the future forever, and liberty and justice for all hang in the balance. Next up is Into the Real by John Ringo and Lydia Scherer. Lynn Raven may be the boss master of Warmonger 2050, but when the CEO of Tsunami Entertainment personally asks her to beta test a new augmented reality game, she has to face her greatest fear, going outside and dealing with, well, people. But once inside, she'll have to ask herself if she is willing to step into the real to win the future she's always wanted. Next up, we have Servants of War by Larry Correa and Steve Diamond. Ilarion Glaskov's quiet life on the fringes of the Empire is thrown into chaos when he is conscripted into the Tsarist military and sent to serve in The Wall, an elite regiment that pilots suits of armor made from the husks of dead golems. But the Great War is not the only danger facing Ilarion, as he is caught in a millennia-old conflict between two goddesses. And we also have Valhellions by Tim Akers. When John Rass signed up for Nightwatch, he expected it to be all fighting dragons and rescuing maidens. You know, hero stuff. But instead, he stuck patrolling game conventions and cosplayer competitions. Fortunately, all that changes when an honest-to-goodness necromancer shows up wielding a weapon created by Nazi occultists and accompanied by some badass evil Valkyries hell-bent on kicking off the end of the world. And that's it for the news. Ladies and gentlemen, we are live 
from the Bain offices for this episode of the Bain Free Radio Hour. I am your host, Sean C.W. Korsgaard, assistant editor and the publicity and media liaison here at Bain Books. And I am joined by four of our newest authors here at Bain. In order, joining us over Zoom, we have Gregory Frost, author of our upcoming fantasy novel, Rhymer. We have Howard Andrew Jones, author of the Chronicles of Hanuvar Sword and Sorcery series. We have a longtime anthology contributor here at Bain, making her novel debut this December, Threading the Needle by Mona Lisa Foster. And after making a stunning first impression on many Bain readers with her story in Chicks and Tank Tops, appropriately named Next Question, we have Marisa. Marisa Wolf and her novel, Next Spring, Beyond Enemies. So, to begin with, all of you, I believe, with the exception of Mona Lisa, are making your debut here on the Bain Free Radio Hour. So, for all of our listeners and viewers, why don't you introduce yourselves? Tell our longtime readers and listeners a little bit about yourselves and maybe a little bit about why they should buy your books. Gregory, you start us off. Oh gee. Um, well, let's see. I've uh, I published my first uh, short story in 1981 in the Twilight Zone magazine. For those of you who can remember that far back, and I've been writing horror, fantasy, and science fiction ever since. Um, I've been a finalist for I think pretty much every award under the sun at least once, uh, and won an Asimov's Reader's Award for a short story collaboration with Michael Swanwick. Um, the novel that uh, I have coming out is the first of uh, three, I guess you'd call it a trilogy, although really it's sort of a potential series. Um, and it's Rhymer uh, is the title of the novel, and that's me taking the central characters of basic English-Scottish uh, folk ballads, Thomas the Rhymer and Tam Lynn, and sort of putting them in a blender and hitting puree. Um and blending those elements uh, into an alien invasion story where the aliens are perceived in the time period as elves, fairies, demons of folklore and mythology. Howard, tell us about Hanavar. Uh, <clears throat> so, and yourself. And, and, and you. Okay then. Uh, so me, uh, I was with St. Martin's for a few years. I did some Arabian fantasy for them. Uh, I wrote four Pathfinder novels. I've been um, editing Tales from the Magician's Skull for Goodman Games, and that's uh, that's one of the few modern homes of sword and sorcery. That's yes, it. there's there's one of our lovely covers, and uh, I guess I've been a champion of sword and sorcery for about 20, 25, 30 years now, um, and I am just delighted to be here at Bain, who seems to be the modern publisher most open to. Sword and Sorcery. And as for Hanavar, uh, this is old school Sword and Sorcery with uh, sort of a modern spin on it. And uh, I'll, I'll talk some more about that later over the course of the interview, but I'm pretty excited to be here and uh, introduce the world to this character. Mona Lisa, tell us about yourself and Threading the Needle. Hi, I'm Mona Lisa Foster. Um, I, um, I'm a I've been, I've been writing short stories mostly, but uh, I was very excited uh, 
to finally transition to having my first uh, traditionally published novel come out, which is, is Threading the Needle. It was inspired uh, by the John Wayne movie, El Dorado. Space opera is my favorite genre to write in because it lets you have adventure and kind of a science-y background and you, have, you can have all of these uh, really cool things happening and it's really the primary genre I write in. And I can use some of the stuff that uh, I actually was educated for, which was I'm, I'm a physicist. I used to work in uh, engineering and also in radiation oncology. So this kind of hits all of my buttons. It lets me be creative, it lets me be scientific, and it lets me create some really great characters. Nice. Sciencey and fun. Sorry. I like it. Uh, yes, hi, I'm Marisa Wolf. I write science fiction and fantasy and every little corner in between I can get my fingers on. Um, I have been in the indie world since 2017, um, and I have uh, sneaked into some vain anthologies along the way, um, like this one right behind us. Uh, and uh, Beyond Enemies is an expansion of my short story from Chicks and Tank Tops uh, called Next Question, and I'm not going to tell you too much about it, but it is a little military sci-fi, a little bit, um, and a little bit space opera, and a lot of conspiracies all the way down. Like, I really got into the turtles all the way down of Terry Pratchett, and this is just conspiracies all the way down. So. Now, you've told us a bit about your books, but of course, this is your chance to introduce not only yourselves, but your work to our wonderful audience at home. So, get those elevator pitches ready and tell our listeners and viewers why they should buy your book and what it's about. Gregory, lead the way. So, get those elevator pitches ready and tell our <laughs> listeners and viewers why they should buy your book and what it's about. Gregory, lead the way. Gee, I thought I did that. Uh, <laughs> um, Rhymer is about a character named Thomas the Rhymer uh, out of English balladry, who in the original folk song is taken by the Queen of Elfland or the Queen of Fairies on a, a hellish ride to Elfland and deposited back uh, in reality, theoretically. Um, married to the story of Tam Lin, which is about somebody who's already been taken by the queen of Elfland, strangely enough, and who has fallen in love with a woman named Janet, who has gotten Janet pregnant, apparently, uh, as the song goes, um, and tells her how to rescue him when he's brought back by the queen of fairies, who intends to sacrifice him as the tithe or the tind to... Uh, whatever it is fairies sacrifice people to. Um, and the thing that fascinated me and the thing that sort of brought the two of them together uh, is that um, both of these stories take place within about 10 miles of each other. They're, the ballads are separated maybe by a century or two, but where they're taking place is almost exactly the same location. And there are so many elements of one in the other that it just seemed like the two stories ought to be conflated in some way. And that kind of started me thinking about, what can I do that's different with this? Um, and it got very different as the uh, the elves and fairies in the book are, uh, are an alien species, an alien race that's invasive, to say the least. So Thomas becomes a kind of... Um, 
not to give too much away, but by the end of the book, Thomas has become kind of a Michael Moorcock eternal champion. Uh, the only person who's standing up to these creatures who actually understands what they are. So that's Reimer. Howard, I know I don't need to tell you to talk about Hanabar to talk about Hanabar, but please <laughs> shoot your shot. All right, so Hanabar's city has fallen. <clears throat> the people fought uh, block by block, house by house. Most of them fell with sword in hand. Only a few thousand survived to be taken away in chains. So thorough was the Durban Empire's destruction of the city that they sowed its ground with salt. They ritually cursed it. They looted its temples. They only made one mistake, and that's that they let Hanavar Kibera live. And Hanavar is against the might of a vast empire. All he has is an aging sword arm, decades of military experience, and the greatest military mind in the world set upon a single goal. It doesn't matter where they've been taken. From the end of the empire to its rotten core, Hanavar will track down his people. He will find every last one of them, and he will set them free. Hell yes. Nice. <laughs> nice. Mona Lisa? Tell us about Threading the Needle and a bit about how your John Wayne twist has a military sci-fi touch. Mm -hmm. uh, Threading the Needle is about uh, Talia Merritt, who is a wounded veteran turned bodyguard, and she joins forces with her old sniper partner. Uh, they're going to uh, help some terraformers fight a rival uh, who is trying to steal the secret that is going to allow the new world, uh, the newly colonized world called Gordon, to um, to come closer to independence from the corporate nobility ruling Earth. And the way it has a military sci-fi twist to it is that she happens to have a cybernetic arm. So we have we have this woman who uh, who has been wounded, has been given a cybernetic arm to replace the arm that she lost. And she is also trying to outrun her reputation as death's handmaiden. Mm. Marissa, oh, good. bring it home. Uh, sure. So Talon Riaz uh, is just, you know, a gene-edited girl fighting a war uh, with her AI partner that was grown in her head, B617, uh, also known as B. Um, and Talon and B have been sent to the ass end of the war, basically. And they are not pleased about it because what is the point of having a weapon of mass destruction under your control if there's nothing to mass destruct? Uh, and then a lot of things go horribly, horribly wrong. And the injustice they think they were served isn't at all the injustice they're dealing with. Uh, and they need to decide, are we gonna let the galaxy stand at status quo or are we gonna risk burning it down? Um, and there wouldn't be much of a novel if they don't risk burning it down, so I don't feel like I'm giving away too much telling you that they think they know the story and they don't, and that happens a couple of times. So. Now, one other thing I love about this group of authors is each of you took a very different route to getting published by Bain. Sure. Could you tell us a bit about that? And at the same time, what made you pitch your book to Bain? And what went through your head when that contract got signed? The moment every author dreams of. <laughs> I think the first thing that went through my head uh, when the contract was signed was, oh my God, I've got to write books two and three now. Uh, 
So sort of sort of that moment of panic. Um, we pitched the books to Bain mainly because Bain publishes across the spectrum. I mean, you're, you're just talking about that right here. Um, you know, horror, fantasy, science fiction, it's it's all uh, it's all under the umbrella of Bain. And this is a book that sort of incorporates all of those things. It's got elements of horror. It's definitely uh, got a, a science fictional twist to it. And it's definitely uh, fantasy, uh, historical fantasy. So that was why. Um, and that's really that's just where I live a, across that spectrum of genres. So I, I love having a publisher that's that's going, yeah, do anything you want. We'll watch. I guess I should say that I knew that Bain would be most receptive to stories of adventure and with honest to goodness heroes. And it, it seemed a natural fit. And we, my agent and I approached multiple publishers, but I had my fingers crossed for Bain. <laughs> so it, it seemed like it would be the best fit. And lo and behold, it was. Nice. Nice. Um, I, met, I happened to mention to Tony that I thought that um, this would make a great, a great space opera. And she said, yeah, it would. So go ahead and write it. And I remember uh, at first kind of uh, being a little uh, apprehensive about making it about um, space cows. <laughs> and she says, no, no, no. You need to make it about space cows. So I just ran with it after that. I was like, once, I, once she said that was OK, everything just kind of came together. <laughs> Oh, space cow saved the universe. So good. Um, yeah, I uh, had written a couple of short stories. I have loved Bane for, a, I'm not going to do time math because it makes us all feel old. So a long time. Uh, next year is the 40th anniversary and a long time. Um, so I had been wanting to be amongst the legends that work with Bane for a really long time um, and got to write some short stories, was talking to Tony about them. Um, and when I wrote Next Question um, for Chicks and Tank Tops, I'm just going to keep pointing to it because this cover is amazing, um, I was kind of obsessed with the characters. And once it was over, I was like, there's, there's so much more to do there. Um, and when I was talking to Tony about some of the stories that I had written re recently that she had read, um, she was like, well, you know, what are you thinking? I was like, I really want to write a novel based on this, and this is what would happen. She's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, and then this would happen. She's like, yeah, I'm going to need to see an outline and a first chapter. Let's do it. And I was like... Yes, thank you so much. Um, and what went through my mind when I had a contract in front of me was a high-pitched squeal um, for a very long time, maybe a tear. I don't know. It, it's a little bit of a blur um, because I might have hugged it, like I physically hugged the contract. I'm not embarrassed to tell you that. I would do it again. Um, and yeah, just really just so pumped. So. Well, we've asked a bit about the pitching process and the sale. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a group of new to Bane authors about the writing process, especially given some of our listeners are themselves aspiring authors, hopefully aspiring Bane authors. So please, tell us a bit about how you write these wonderful stories. It's all you, Greg. Oh, me. Uh, well, I'm somewhere between the two poles of seat-of-the-pants writer and, and a structuralist, okay? Um, I draft longhand with a fountain pen. I don't recommend this to everybody else, okay? I think it's 19th century technology writ large. Um, and I don't even call that a first draft. I call that a zero draft because it's too crappy to be called a first draft. Um, it's usually a mess of text, uh, ideas, notes. It might be a paragraph written over and over and over again just to get me launched into the thing that I actually want to type up. 
And from that, I type up a first draft uh, that's more coherent in a way, I think, because through that weird uh, tactile process of writing with a pen, I found connections in the material that weren't there, even though I had an outline that I was working from. Somehow the actual physical putting the words down on page sort of concretizes, if if that's uh, the, the way to put it, um, what I'm starting out with. So I'm both seat of the pants and structuralist. I don't think you can write a novel in the end without an outline. I know a couple people that do it and they scare the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> but most most people I know sooner or later are sitting there at least outlining their chapters as they go, if not the whole book. Greg, my, uh, my process is somewhat similar to yours. I don't use a fountain pen, but I do tend to write the first draft longhand uh, in my notebooks. And it is, I also call it sort of a scaffolding draft. Um, yeah. And it, it ends up looking like a bad screenplay. It's mostly the dialogue. I work out the dialogue beats to make sure I've got all that figured out ahead mm -hmm. of time. And then on all of the plot knots, all the major plot knots I work out before I start drafting. Because when I was, when I was first writing, I would sometimes get stuck. I'd be motoring along really fast and I'd get stuck on something for two or three days and really throw off my rhythm. Mm. And nowadays, I just want it all figured out. I mean, problems are going to come up. They always do. But at least most of the major ones already figured out in the structural draft so that's where I start um, and it, it, it's a pretty intense draft I kind of do all my exploratory and free writing uh, in the notebook and then once I put it on the computer then I just begin to polish I'm very much a pantser and I, I try to plot and uh, I it's, it's plots plotting scares me so I went back to pantsing and usually I start with the characters and with the setting. So for example, for this, I knew I wanted to have kind of a, a Japanese aesthetic to it. Mm -hmm. So imagine cowboy and samurai, but in a Meiji restoration kind of setting. And um, after I fleshed that out, I just start writing and I, um, I cycle. So I do the first vomit draft of a scene. <laughs> and you're not supposed to show that draft to anybody. Ever. Mm -hmm. And then I'll write the next scene and then cycle back and flesh out the first one and add to it, and then I'll write the third scene and then cycle back. So I'm, I'm in this constant revision and adding to and fleshing out the revision mode. So usually by the time I'm done with my first draft, it's 90% complete in, in, in far, as far as polishing it. And I make sure that I have hit all of the story beats. So everything that's supposed to be in, the, in act one is in act one in order. I, I, and same for act two, three, and four. I make sure I hit all of my turning points at the one-eighth, two-eighth, three-eighth, four-eighth, and so on, nice. all the way to the end. So I am constantly revising, polishing, and fleshing out both structurally and creatively as I write. And that's why at the end of the day, I face plant into a pillow. <laughs> <laughs> that checks out. Also, you scared the hell out of Greg. Because you're a panther. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. But an organized panther. Yes. Yeah. I'm very, it's weird. It's very, <laughs> no, it's cool. Uh, so I have had the incredible opportunity to co-write with other crazily talented authors. So I've been working with Chris Kennedy Publishing. That's the indie publishing company I've worked with. And I have co-written novels with Casey Izell, uh, who many Bain readers will be familiar with, uh, with Chris Kennedy, with Mark Wandry. And they all have these wildly different writing processes. But when you write with somebody else, you have to be more organized, which moved me 
very slowly and reluctantly from full-on pantsing, um, thank you, many years of fan fiction, um, into more of, oh, I need to know where I'm going so I can work with somebody else. Um, so I had an outline. It was chapter by chapter. They are very detailed for Act 1, semi-detailed for Act 2, and Act 3 is like, yes, <laughs> things are going to happen. Um, and then as I get through Act 1 and Act 2, I revisit my outline to think about, okay, what beats do I actually need to hit? Where did my characters go versus where I thought they would go? And what do I need to accomplish in Act 3 to, to get there? Um, and so it's a lot of going back and saying, like, oh, that, I was going to do that thing. And then I went horribly, horribly sideways. <laughs> and so how do I get back to go over here to do the thing I wanted to do? Um, and then when I get stuck, I've stolen this from one of my co-authors, and I don't remember which, so thank you. I just throw it in brackets. So you don't use brackets in a manuscript, so they're really easy to search for. So my first draft of Beyond Enemies had entire bracketed sections that were like, something cool will go here. There'll be a battle here. Figure out who exists so you know who to kill. Like, it's just these notes to myself that, again, no one should ever see. Um, but sometimes my sister sees them, and so she'll see something like, something cool will happen here. And she's like, well, that's cool. I'm really excited to know what that is. <laughs> That'll be good. And you know what? Sometimes I'm also really excited to know what that will be. So... Now, I'd like to ask each of you some individual questions, given the chance. Starting with you, Greg. I guess the first thing is, especially looking back at your wonderful bibliography of work, a lot of it touches on Celtic mythology, medieval folklore. What is it that draws you to that as an author? Um, well, the, it's a it's a weird journey. Um, the thing that drew me to to Celtic material originally was probably a, a, a rock album from the 1970s by an Irish band called Horse Lips, who did a, a rendition of the Toyne. Um, they rendered it as I, I don't think it would be a, a rock opera, but it was definitely a concept album that they were doing the story, and that led me to Thomas Kinsella's translation of the Toyne. And from there to Lady Gregory's retelling of the same story from the 19th century, and then a lot of research into it, uh, which in that case included bicycling across Ireland, because I wanted to thread the path that uh, the original story had taken all the way across. And, um, and also Scotland and Wales and England, because I was on a bicycle, so why not? What the hell? Um, my editor on Toyne was Terry Windling, and she later reeled me back in to write some fairy tale derived stories and also a novel for her fairy tale series called Fitcher's Brides, which is based on Bluebeard. Um, so at that point, I was so steeped in uh, various myths and folk tales and fairy tales and such um, that I constructed my own myth driven world which is called Shadow Bridge, and I set a novel in Shadow Bridge. So I've sort of just been swimming in, uh, in mythology and folk tales and, and what can I do to bend reality through that, that mirror, um, probably from the start as a result of that. You're not the first writer to tackle Thomas the Rhymer, whether it be as a poem, a retelling, their version of the story. Other True. Going back to Kipling, or of course the Ellen Kushner take on it from the 90s, what was it that drew you to True Thomas? And what do you think your unique addition to the storytellers tackling his tale is? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I think Ellen Kushner did a magnificent job with her Thomas the Rhymer. Uh, and that also was for the Terry Windling fairy tale series. So we're 
you know, uh, compatriots there. Um, ostensibly, Thomas was a real historical figure. Uh, there are lots of conflicting narratives as to who he was, when he existed, etc. He comes with different names. Um, and as I found, as I say, in researching the books, the story in the ballad bear, uh, bore a lot of similarities to Tam Lin. Um, so it gave me all these different elements to utilize uh, and directions I could go in, things that, you know, hadn't been done before because you can kind of take him apart and reassemble him in different ways. Um, and I started referencing things from the two ballads to... Uh, suggest that here were some real things that had occurred, uh, which over time mutated into the ballads, um, which is kind of the way I play it through the book. And then in the second book, this allows me to do the same thing with another historical figure, uh, also built from contradictory source material, whom Thomas becomes, and that's Robin Hood. So doing it in book one kind of opened the door for, oh, we're going to mess with the same thing a century later um, and and explore Robin Hood in the same way. You've got lots of contradictory stories about Robin Hood. Why not go there too? So that's kind of where it went. Now, the other thing that reading Reimer that really impressed me, at least as a reader and an editor, was you really rope in a lot of different genres, fantasy, historical fiction, even science fiction, and you thread the needle so skillfully. What's your secret? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I drink a lot. No, uh, let's see. Uh, I, I'm not, well, I said that I like to write across the genres. This is a project that's offered me the opportunity to hack in all three at once. Um, I kind of think of science fiction as the fiction of change. Uh, and in this case, that's cemented to a, a horror aspect of the story, which is to say uh, the fiction of intrusion or violation. So the science fiction is really the engine driving this intrusion. Um, so here we have a science fiction aspect, the Evag race, who are sempiternal and have a goal of remaking the earth for their habitation, which is what their real uh, dark plan is. And for them, a thousand years is nothing. It doesn't mean a thing. Um, and by manipulating key decisions by the ruling class over time, um, they can guide the world to their goal. So dropping that premise onto the form of a folkloric tale meant that uh, I have a character who's their nemesis, uh, presumably for a very small period of time, but then an accident turns him into something, like I said, the Michael Moorcock eternal champion figure. Um, who can live through time and continue to combat them. And so the second book becomes one of him reconciling with this transformation um, and very reluctantly, which is, I guess, sort of the superhero journey that we've seen many times, but that's what I'm working with. And he learns to embrace it. So embrace what he's become. So it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a big canvas with elements of epic fantasy, with elements of horror and science fiction yoked together to produce this tale. At least, at least I hope so. That's 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 the intent. So that's my big pitch there. Now, Howard, you are a longtime name and fixture of modern sword and sorcery as an editor, a fan writer, and of course, an author. 
And there's something of a big revival going on, whether or not you want to call it the New Age, the Iron Age, or the Pulp Revival. It's a dozen different labels, but Sword and Sorcerer is really having a big revival moment. As a longtime student of the genre and contributor to it, where does that modern upswing fit in the history of the genre? And for that matter, where does Hanabar? <laughs> you know, epic fantasy pushed sword and sorcery out in the marketplace mm. uh, in the late 80s or early 90s. Uh, you would get an occasional author, I think a Jamel, <clears throat> probably was the only one who was keeping it alive in uh, the 90s. But uh, mostly it's uh, epic fantasies and urban fantasies completely pushed it out. But that doesn't mean that there weren't a bunch of us out there still writing it and wanting to write it. And there were small press venues and slightly larger small press venues. Um, and an occasional spot would pop up in some of the larger magazines, but not very often. Um, I could go on and on about my speculations for how or why that happened. But um, as for this new movement, I don't feel like it's that new, actually, uh, because me and uh, compatriots like um, uh, James Ng and uh, John Chris Hawking and Milton Davis, uh, I could go on and on and on, um, uh, Violet Milan, we've been out there writing it. And as far as how is it different from older stuff? Well, we're drawing from the same sources. It's like we're going to the same well but we're leaving some of the suspect stuff behind, some, some, uh, some of the suspect politics and uh, racism and sexism, mm -hmm. but we're keeping the forward momentum, the fast pace, the sense of the exotic. Um, and where Hanavar fits into that, he's, he's all about the forward momentum. He's all about uh, individual exciting episodes that build into part of a greater whole. Um, and then of course I put in some of my own, I'm fast, I've been fascinated with heroes. Um, Audie Murphy for instance, or um, Medal of Honor recipients. Uh, I, I just love those stories. I and mean, they're about people who stand up and do the right thing even when no one is watching, even when all the odds are stacked against them. And that's what Hanover is doing. Impossible odds, but he knows what the right thing to do is, and that's what he's going to do. You kind of touch on both of my other questions, but first is that one of the things that's so unique about Hanover is that, first, he is a middle-aged sword and sorcery protagonist, and that that Roman and Punic War influence steeps throughout the series. Mm -hmm. And I know you are yourself a student of Hannibal and the Punic Wars. What drew you to that era to base your sword and sorcery hero off of ancient Rome as opposed to the Bronze Age or medieval era that so many authors draw off of? And what made you decide to base your hero off, debatably, the biggest boogeyman of the ancient world? <laughs> well, first, since I'm middle-aged, it may look like, oh, of course you'd write about a middle-aged era. Stop. But, Oddly enough, I came up with Hanavar like 15 or 20 years ago, and it took me a long time, I feel like, to polish my skill to do him properly. Or maybe I had to be old enough myself to write him properly. But I've been fascinated with Hannibal of Carthage since I was 15 or 16. He was, uh, 
I know it sounds weird, but he was a childhood hero. Um, and I reread uh, Hannibal, uh, Harold Lamb's Hannibal biography the way some people read and reread uh, Lord of the Rings. Mm. Uh, I could go on and on. I could probably talk for a couple of hours about why Hannibal of Carthage is so freaking cool. Um, it's not just that he was a great general, and he was. His, the way he won battles has almost a Zorro-like uh, wiliness to it that's fascinating. But he's also a capable statesman. Um, and uh, I mean, once the wars were over, he came back and reorganized the Carthaginian Senate so that instead of having lifetime rule, the senators had to be elected by the people every two years. What were, the, what were the rest of the questions? <laughs> <laughs> well, you sort of answered a lot of it. That what drew you to make your hero based off Hannibal. But one thing you haven't touched on yet is one of the other things I've loved about the Hanavar books is that in that classical sword and sorcery sense, they're broken up into smaller stories that form a cohesive whole. And while we saw a lot of that, especially in the 70s boom with Cain, Elric of Melnibane, Dilvish the Damned, and of course, Jack Vance and Dying Earth, and all those classics, you don't see a lot of it these days. What made you decide to take that classical approach? Well, look, I love that old stuff. I grew up reading it, and as I, uh, as I got a little older, I continued to read it. So uh, I, I am just steeped in it. Uh, Fafford and the Grey Mouse, or Conan, Cull, all of the Robert E. Howard heroes. Um, Lesser known, but just as important because he preceded them all, was Cleet the Cossack by Harold Lamb. Those mm. stories are amazing. And I never saw any other way to tell none of our stories. So they're, they're individual episodes, but they build toward a greater whole. Each book is it's sort of like uh, a season of a TV series. So even though each stands alone, they build, characters come back, and then it builds toward a season climax that wraps up the book. And then season two starts in, in book two, and then season three. And of course, there's an overall arc that's building to complete the story. And um, what else can I say? I'm having so much fun writing them. While I was waiting to hear back on book one, uh, maybe it was stupid of me, I just kept writing. <laughs> so I had book two written by the time I finally got a green line on book one, and I'm, um, I'm revising book three now. I love the character, I love the stories. I'm super excited about the whole sword and sandal vibe with the, uh, where magic is not this uh, easy thing, but it's dark and terrifying like you see in the old sword and sorcery tales. Also not stupid because that means both are coming, two are coming out this year. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty I great mean, for readers. Uh, book one comes out in August, book two comes out in October, shortly on its heels. I mean, like, we had that cover. There's, there's the cover, yeah. Nice. And you'll see, that doesn't look the least bit like it might be influenced by ancient no. history. Mm -mm. Now, you did ask why I chose ancient history as, a, uh, as far as medieval. Look, I've dug all kinds of medieval fantasies, but probably because I was fascinated with ancient history from an early age, it seemed a natural. And I love old sword and sandal flicks. Um, plus, it's not done as much, and why not? Yeah. Now, Mona Lisa. So again, touch on those authors' journeys with us. You've been a longtime fixture of a lot of Bane anthologies, going back to the Freehold collections to, most recently, you had a great story in Robo Soldiers. Absolutely breathtaking story. For all of you who haven't read Robo Soldiers yet, please do. What was it like finally making that jump that, to a certain extent, every Bane anthology contributor hopes to make? to be a novelist? Um, 
I actually started out writing novels, <laughs> and so short stories were kind of second form. Mm -hmm. But I think because novels are easier to write than short stories because you do have more of a, of a set structure and more, you can do more, that it really felt like, oh, I've made it. This is what I, this, this, I have been trying to be Lois Bujold ever since I discovered Lois Bujold. Yeah. And I've been wanting to write specifically for Bayan, probably for just as long. So it was one of those things that, it was one of those lifetime bucket checklist items. And I remember when I first, uh, when I first got the email um, from Tony saying, okay, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and take it that I actually had to have Rick read it to me several times to make sure that it <laughs> yes. was exactly what I thought I was reading. She was like, this is a yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I, I couldn't believe it for days. Um, so that's, that was kind of like, that was where the transition was for me is, oh, I've made it, I'm here. Of course, one of the things that really stands out about threading the needle, you touched a little bit on the Japanese influence, but also your Romanian upbringing flavored a lot of it, such as you have bokoi instead of cowboys. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So um, in, in Romania we had um, one channel and 30 minutes of programming a day. And that was for the Romanian uh, television. And this was, uh, just to clarify for everybody, this was still under communism under Ceausescu's regime. And a lot of the stories were just broken up uh, because the censors would take them apart mm -hmm. and, and chop them apart. But if the, if the movie was old enough, they would, then it would pass the censors. And if the setting was old enough, it would pass the censors. And same thing with Hungarian television, because my grandparents were ethnic Hungarians. Uh, so we would have two channels, and they were very grainy and very, um, very chopped up. But I grew up on um, Pirates, on Errol Flynn and his adventure movies. I grew up on American cowboy films. And Bokoi, it was just a thing that um, us kids, because we, you know, we weren't English speakers at the time, mispronounced cowboy. And that was how we got our reward, was we were allowed to watch Bokoi films if we, did, if we were good. Um, so that's, that, that's where the influence came from. Now, the other influence that you've touched on a little is the legend himself, Mr. John Wayne and one of his movies in particular. Why that John Wayne flick? And were there any other Westerns that helped shape Threading the Needle? And for that matter, were there any space Westerns that helped influence it? Funny you should bring that up. <laughs> Firefly, it turns out, is the first space Western, right? And also, Yul Brenner's um, Westworld. Yeah. And uh, I remember uh, watching um, you Brenner dubbed and it was either Roma it was Romanian and um, and he's the actor himself is I've always very, been very very impressed with him same thing with Errol Flynn same thing with with John Wayne and there's nothing more American than John Wayne and one of one of the things that uh, I identify as is I'm just an American. I am not a Romanian American. Mm. I am not a hyphenated American. And if there is a quintessential image of an American, it's John Wayne. This particular movie, um, I think I've seen it 
two dozen times at least. It's one of those old favorites. Where you, you know, you just your guilty pleasure. I love everything about it. I love the friendship between the between the main characters. I love the story itself. Um, I I thought well, you know, basically it was it's a, it's more of a tribute mm -hmm. to it because it's just to me this is the quintessential American movie. Marvelous. Now, last but certainly never least, Marisa. <laughs> You've been a longtime indie author, and this is your first Trad Pub novel. What was it my, like making that leap with Beyond Enemies? I, I mean, <laughs> I think just just getting published was so crazy to me. I think back in 2017, like I wrote, I wrote fan fiction, y'all, um, for 20 <clears throat> years, and um, it was a lot. Um, we're about to be attacked. Chicks and tank tops does not approve of my fanfic background. Um, so uh, I didn't actually ever think I would get published. Like I was just like, writing is fun. I love it so much. Um, and so holding a, a book with my name on it um, was pretty baller. Um, and getting, I, I obviously don't have that yet for Bane. It'll be next year, 2024, 40th anniversary. It's going to be amazing. Um, but the idea that I get to be published alongside some freaking towering talents. Um, like I said, I've been reading Bane for such a long time and you're always guaranteed to get such a good story. And so the idea that my story was considered good enough to be on eventually these shelves, these shelves with these people, um, it is like, like you were saying, like just like a, a dream moment. Like I, I knew I wanted this, but I didn't think it could be real. And then it was real, <laughs> it was exciting. Next question, and you'll pardon my pun. Mm. When you wrote Next Question for Chicks and Tank Tops, <laughs> did you ever imagine you'd be asked to pitch a novel expanding upon it? And when you were asked, did you already have a novel? So imagine, yes. Believe, no. <laughs> um, uh, so Sean said a little bit earlier, almost any time you write a short story for Bane, you're like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I could also write a novel for Bane? Um, so yes, imagined for sure. Like, I mean, I imagine a movie deal. I imagine a lot of things. Um, I did not believe it would be real, but I knew when I finished that story. Um, so there are a series of questions that are asked in that story, hence the title, um, go figure. Um, and I knew at the end that there was so much more and I was so excited about it. So I didn't go as far as writing it. So it wasn't like the book too, I kept going. Um, but I did really think about it. So to the point when Tony and I were talking about it, I was like, these are the things that would happen. This, I know this. I didn't have an outline, but I knew the big things. I knew, I knew the conspiracies under the conspiracies. Um, and, and when she invited me to do the outline in the chapter, I, I mean, I wrote the chapter in probably like three days and then I sat on it for like three months because I wanted to make sure it was good. Um, so yeah, uh, but yes, imagined, yes, believed, no, and having it happen is pretty, I mean, I can't, I'm still obviously very giddy about it. So. <laughs> I think that's wonderful though. And <laughs> the heroes of Beyond Enemies and Next Question, mm -hmm. They're the Breezy Team. I hear there's a story behind that name. Why don't you share that story? Yeah, so ish. Um, so in Next Question, you meet Talon Riaz and Series B 617, um, I've said too much, um, and a Series B AI. Um, and they're just out of training in this, in this short story. So there are lots of shenanigans that start off, and I mean like fun shenanigans, because they're just out of training, they're young, they're excited, they're about to go on their first mission. Um, and so, 
they all have these little like AI call signs sort of things. So you don't call it B617 or CCF12, like they, they have names, um, but their names are B and CC and whatever, like they're, they're based on that. And so then to show that you are an eight, you are an AI troop, um, you have this combined name. This, so Talon, Riaz and B became Breezy. Um, and at one point the AI is like, yeah, so I get ours, ours makes sense, it's logical. But she just starts making fun of some of the other ones. She's like, this is a reach, don't you think? And that was just kind of fun because I mean, some call signs are kind of a reach and most of them are fun. Um, so that was really fun to play with. Um, and yeah, I wanted to say something else there, but breezy. So they're funny, they, they refer to themselves that way. Um, and then in the novel, uh, you see the AI pairs consider unpaired humans empty because they don't have an, an AI in their brain. So you, you have a name like Breezy and it differentiates you from the empties of the rest of the universe. To bring things around to some fun questions, what is your favorite book published by Bain other than yours? And could you tell us a bit about it? Gregory, lead the charge. Oh God, favorite book. Listen, uh, I went through the the list last night just for kicks to see what's there and it's way more than I even imagined. Um, in a weird kind of way, Leigh Brackett's Eric John Stark book, she wrote great early space opera and I just adore her stuff. Um, and, and yeah, right. And, and that's before, uh, you know, she collaborated on the script for The Empire Strikes Back. She was a great screenwriter, but she also wrote these magnificent uh, space opera novels. But um, you've got a collection by F. Brett Cox, who's a longtime friend of mine, Rick Bowes, another friend. You've reprinted Jack Dan and Gardner Dozois' uh, collaborative anthologies. Um, I think I'm in one or two of those. Um, and even the ebook editions of, uh, of Ellen Datlow's best horror anthology. So um, it's kind of all over the place. But if I had to settle on anything, it would probably be the Manly Wade Wellman novels that you... Uh, that you've published because uh, I lived in North Carolina for a while and I, I knew Manly briefly. I'm sorry, we're doing the we're doing the Blofeld thing here with the cat in the lap. So anyway, and she doesn't like me talking. So that's the end of that. Um, so I can't pick just one book. I'm impressed by the the breadth once again of of what Bain publishes and uh, and how many authors I recognize, how many authors works I've read. Breath and Wit, you are now joining, I might add. And of course, Howard, I know, did a double take when he saw his favorite on the shelves. <laughs> Why don't you share us that favorite, Howard? Well, I mean, there's, like Greg, there's so many great ones. I mean, we've got some Zelazny here, we've got some Tim Powers here, David Drake's Fettius and Friends, not to mention a whole bunch of other David Drake titles. Um, but what I saw on the shelf here was Michael Shea's Incomplete Nift. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet Michael Shea just a couple of times. I can't say as I knew him very well, but uh, at a couple of conventions and, and what a gentleman he was and what a tremendous talent. You'll notice that, well, you probably can't see the fine print on this, but he won the World Fantasy Award. And this was Sword and Sorcerer. And I think that this is the last time that any Sword and Sorcerer won the World Fantasy Award, although James Ang was nominated. Um, Anyway, this is just a splendid book, and I hope that it will soon become uh, some sort of at least ebook reprint because Michael Shea's A Treasure needs to be read far, far more widely. Now, Mona Lisa, share yours. <laughs> before, I go in, before I go into talking about this uh, too much, 
uh, one of my absolute favorite authors is Robert A. Heinlein, mm -hmm. and you guys are republishing some of his stuff. I taught myself English by translating Robert Heinlein's Juveniles in the oh, library. Oh, So good. Okay, so um, that he... Do you have a favorite of the Juveniles? Of the Juvenile, uh, Podcane of Mars, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yes. And Friday is my favorite adult, oh. adult novel. Um, but uh, when, really, Bujold is the one that inspired me to want to write space opera, uh, especially a Regency in space kind of mm -hmm. <laughs> space opera. I love, I love her stuff, and every year I would go through and just read the entire thing over. I've gone through three paperbacks of this that have just been destroyed by me reading. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I just, I love Cordelia. I love, uh, I love all of the characters. Mm -hmm. I could spend years and years just to being with these characters. Now, Marisa, on the other hand, mm -hmm. her eye got pulled by a hardcover. Well, I'm fancy, yeah. <laughs> Share with us yeah. some of your favorites and that one in particular. Yeah, so, um, I mean, so I came to Bain because of Anne McCaffrey. So I was a Dragon Riders of Kern fangirl. Um, so anything that had Anne McCaffrey's name on it, I, I bought it or I took it from the library or I did whatever I could do. Um, and Sassanac, the whole Planet Pirates, Jodie Lynn Nye, Anne McCaffrey, oh my god, so good. No dragons in them, but still really good. Um, and that, that like cool chick, like going out to space without being cardboard figure, amazing. Um, and so I love that. I love cool chicks that aren't cardboard and I love characters. They can be cool dudes too, it's fine. Um, and somebody who also does that really well is Elizabeth Moon. Um, so I read, I hadn't read this until like full on adulthood. Um, so The Deed of Paxinarian, um, a friend of mine recommended it. Uh, another author, Jamie Ibsen, he's fab. Um, He's like, it's my favorite, my favorite character development in the history of time. And I was like, oh, I love character development. That is very important to me. And I read, and I read Elizabeth Moon before. She's wonderful. I mean, definitive Paladin book, right? Like, just you really get to watch this this character develop, and like hard things happen to her, and they're all in service of the story. It's not just like everybody here sucks and is miserable all the time. Like, there there are such triumphs. It's also why I love. Lois McMaster, Bujold, oh my god, she's so good at that, like real characters doing real things, and so their successes feel real because their setbacks feel real. Um, so this one, also it's shiny and it's a hardcover and I'm very fancy, so love it, read and it if you have it. it oh. mm -hmm. It is a collected <laughs> trilogy, so. Character development for literal days, you're welcome. <laughs> and. If I could, of course, while we have four new to Bain authors, if you could offer any advice to some of our aspiring Bain authors, even if you could tell yourself something a couple years ago, what would you want to tell these folks? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you've got something to chew on, Greg. <laughs> oh, there's too much. Right, early and often. Uh, don't... Uh, what do I want to say? Don't be discouraged uh, if you start writing something and you feel like you lose your way and don't know where to go. Uh, quite honestly, I think most writers uh, lose their way and don't know where to go at some point in every project that they're they're writing. And the only answer to that is to continue writing, to push ahead. And I promise you, if you do that, you will push through that wall and come out the other side and your story will start to make sense to you again 
Um, and if you don't do that, you're not going to get published. You're not even going to have a shot at getting published. So you need to convince yourself, even when you think it's all hopeless, that uh, it's it's worth doing. It's worth continuing on. I'll, uh, I'll echo that. And I'll say, I, I was talking to some young writers just a, a month or so ago, and they thought that uh, us experienced writers uh, would get it right the first time. And they were so troubled by their first drafts. And I was like, no, give your, the first draft frequently is terrible. Give yourself permission to let that first draft suck. Just keep writing. And I, I think that's an important lesson. And the other one that I wish I'd learned sooner was know what every character wants in the scene mm. before you start writing. And almost as though you're the film director or the stage director uh, reviewing all the actors' motivations before you say, action. I would say go out and do something and do it well first. Um, because you need, to, you need to go out there and do things that are challenging, that will knock you on your ass, so that you can learn how to get back up. Um, so whether you, you know, go out and become a famous scientist or a famous astronaut, whatever, just do something first, mm -hmm. because that will allow you to survive the process of becoming a writer. <laughs> <laughs> because there, there's just a lot more that goes into it. And more importantly, it will allow you to write characters who have a unique take mm. on things because every story has been done but a unique spin on a story I think is, is one of the more the most important things that you can do is, is to come at a story from a new perspective with a new uh, world view or, or view, viewpoint on it. Yeah. I love the, the first draft advice. Your first draft, the, uh, this is completely stolen advice, um, but the point of the first draft is not to be good or perfect. The point of the first draft is to exist. Um, and it's going to be hot garbage, and that's cool. Um, mine is always hot, hot garbage. And then you cool off the garbage draft by draft, and it's great. Um, and then you take out the garbage, I guess. You don't want it at the end. The metaphor got away from me. It's fine. Um, the other thing is figure out the thing you do really well naturally so you can build on it. So is it character development? Is it setting? Is it plot? What is, what is the thing that fires you up and you're amazing at it? And then build your pieces around it. Um, don't try to write like X person because you think that's the only way to be successful. Find the thing that you are good at and just keep on adding layers to your talents. Oh, I, I, I totally relate to that. Yeah. Dialogue has always come easily for me and that's one of the reasons I use that scaffolding screenplay format. If the dialogue is solid, then it's much easier for me to pour everything else into it. Yeah, play to your strengths. Yeah. Part of the reason people have trouble with the beginnings of stories or writing those first those crappy first drafts is the only thing you ever see is the finished draft uh, that the writer ends up with, the choices that the writer has made and kept. You don't see all the stuff that's discarded and lying on the floor looking like crap. Um, so you don't necessarily realize that the first drafts and the early drafts of, of our works um, are probably the most hideous things in the world and that's natural and that's something to strive for actually don't assume you're going to sit down or that you ought to think that you're going to sit down and write you know the perfect story straight out of the box because nobody does it just doesn't work that way i do have one curveball before we get to the last question because <laughs> we not only have four of our brilliant new to bane authors here today we have bane editor-in-chief tony weisskopf <laughs> And I figured we should take the chance to ask her 
What drew her to these four books and these four uh, authors? Hi, Greg. Long time no see. Hey, Tony. Oh, that actually is the, uh, the, the, the perfect cue for me because um, as an editor, I never ever want to see those ugly first drafts. <laughs> we don't want you to see them. There's good reasons for it, right? The reason is that I want to be able to fall in love with your novel. Um, and uh, if you're showing it to me with the diaper unchanged and, and you know, uh, and the ugly t-shirt on it, I, I, I'm not going to love it, right? Mm -hmm. You want to hand me that baby all perfectly, you know, powdered and, <laughs> and, and puffed and, you know, in, in, its, uh, in, in its prettiest outfit. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I will kiss it and not, you know, do terrible things. Uh, <laughs> We went to child sacrifice really quickly. <laughs> we did. We did. Like natural. He says in front of the expecting parent. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Sean. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's that, that's actually a real thing. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But <laughs> um, that's why all parents are saints. Um, Fair. But uh, but yeah, I, I I did fall in love with all of these guys' uh, books. Um, uh, they were all um, accomplished writers um, b before they sent me their Bane books, right? Um, and I fell in love with Reimer um, when I realized all of the medieval details are right. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? I, can, I can follow along with this, with this story because I can trust the writer because he mm. has given me the correct details about medieval cathedrals and, and, and the weaponry and the clothes and all of that is there. So I can just relax and follow along with his story, which is a dark and compelling and yet wonderful story, of, you know, brilliant new approach, I think, to, uh, to Thomas the Rhymer. Um, and, and that's how I could fall, uh, fall into that. Um, and uh, with uh, Maurice's uh, story, um, I, it, it, it was first in um, uh, Chicks and Tank Tops. So um, I had already fallen in love with these characters um, and, uh, and the relationship between, um, between the heroine and her tank is the key to this. But the world building is also incredibly strong. But I fell in love with the characters. Um, first. And for Mona Lisa's story, um, I, I knew where she was going from the proposal um, already. But then the way that she approached the story and the way that she approached the characters um, also charmed me. But the fact that although this is a planetary adventure, it's a planet story, right? Um, it is hardcore military science fiction in its theme. Um, and I loved that. <laughs> right? um, and uh, for Howard's story, um, the way that his books are structured is is uh, very intentional, mm. right? And and each chapter is essentially, especially the first the first two parts of this. Each chapter is separately an adventure. It is a it is a monster of the month <laughs> chapter, and I'm like, this is great. I love these. This is fantastic. And Sean was the, was the one who was very enthusiastic about your stuff, and so I called Sean and I said, does it build? Because this is really good. 
And Charlotte's like, oh, it builds. <laughs> and it does. We Not only is it really great sword and sorcery monster of the month, you could read it, you could have read it, read it in weird tales, and you would have been you know, perfectly happy with it. But it also does a very 21st century thing of building to a very satisfying complete novel, and then even bigger, a larger five-story, um, uh, five-and-five novel, five-volume story arc. Um, and that's, oh man, oh yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so it's doing all of the great sword and sorcery things that I've wanted, have wanted for a very long time. We're pointing at Dita Paxinarian here, yes. <laughs> right? Which is not a Monster of the Month kind of story, but all but, but is that classic epic fantasy feel to it. But I've finally gotten it, um, and that made me very, very um, excited. So. Um, so I hope you guys um, will also fall in love with these books and, 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 and with these authors. And with that, I'm going to um, sneak away. <laughs> Which brings us to our last question. You've heard why Tony fell in love with these books. I've talked a bit about how I did. Our authors talked about why they love these stories. And hopefully, having seen their brilliance and heard them pitch them, you've fallen in love with them too. So, authors, mm -hmm. Where can our wonderful viewers and listeners find you, find your books, and when does your Bane debut come out? <laughs> Gregory, lead us off. Um, let's see. Well, my website is www.gregoryfrost.com. There's an obvious one. Um, my Facebook handle, if you want to talk to me on Facebook, is gregory.frost1. Um the book comes out, I believe, June 1st, um, so or early June at least. Um, and I'll be at Confluence in uh, Pittsburgh uh, later in, uh, in July uh, for that book this summer. So I think that answered everything, right? Yes, sir. Howard? Let's see. Uh, Lord of the Shattered Land, book one of the Hanabar series drops in August, and book two, City of Marble and Blood, appears in October. What? So not much of a gap between those two. Um, let's see. My website's also really obvious, howardandrewjones.com. I'm not on social media very much. Uh, I'm usually just writing, but I sometimes pop by Facebook, and I believe that's howardandrewjones.one. Um, I don't twit much, but I'm at Howard Andrew John, uh, and I too am going to be making the convention circuit. I'll be at Liberty Con, I'll be at Fantasy here later today, yeah, uh, Imaginarium in um, Louisville, and I'll be at uh, the Gen Con Writer Symposium and Dragon Con. Mona Lisa? I also have a very, very obvious website, it's monalisafoster.com. Uh, I am on social media as Mona Lisa Foster Storyteller on Facebook and at House Dobromel on um, Twitter. And uh, Threading the Needle is going to be out in December. And I'm going to be here at Fantasy and then Liberty Con and then FenCon, which I'm, I'm, it's not happening this fall, but it's happening next February. February. And then maybe next year, but not this year, I'll be at Dragon Con. Marisa, yeah. close us off. I mean, you know at MarisaWolf.com, I also have .net, so you know you got options. Um, if you like, right? I'd like to switch it up. Uh, if you like like books and dogs, I'm at BookDogs on Instagram. Um, you will get 
pictures of my dogs. You're welcome. Um, and I am at Fantasy with these lovely people. Uh, I will be at my home away from home, Liberty Con, later this summer in Chattanooga. Uh, Dragon Con, which is the world's most overwhelming collection of nerds, and I love it so much. Um, and uh, Beyond Enemies comes out spring of 2024 in Bane's 40th anniversary year. I don't know if I've mentioned that, but you know. <laughs> it never hurts to plug it one you more know, time. And of course, you will find these wonderful authors and many, many more on, at Bane.com, all of our social media networks, YouTube, Rumble, Facebook, Twitter, and wherever fine books are sold. Listeners, readers, and viewers, thank you for joining us and we will see you next time. Bye, thank you. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a cobra. It took a week, but at last the results of the various Blusser-Reed tests began to coalesce, and they were indeed just as Darl had suggested. It seems to be a response to severe lack of available groundwater, the senior botanist told the council, his hands trembling noticeably as he shifted graphs, complex formulas, and photos on the syndic's comm boards. He'd probably never before addressed even a single syndic before, Johnny thought, let alone a group of them plus a Dominion Comité. One of the components in the cutin, that's the layer that protects against water loss, alters chemically from this form to this one. The two molecular diagrams appeared on the comm boards. It turns out that this makes good biological sense in two complementary ways, the botanist continued. Not only is the new cutin 15 to 20 percent better at controlling transpiration, but the chemical reaction involved actually releases two molecules of water, which are then available for the plant to use. In other words, the drier it gets, the crazier the gantuas become, Syndic Hemner asked. Basically, yes, the scientist nodded. There may be a cutoff somewhere where the gantuas switch to a different plant species for food, but if there is, we don't seem to have reached it yet. Seated beside Gwen against the side wall, Halloran caught Johnny's eye and wrinkled his nose. Johnny nodded fractionally in agreement. If the Gantua they'd fought wasn't fully berserk, he had no wish to meet one that was. Well, then, our alternatives seem pretty clear, Hemner said grimly. We either get Comité Darl's new cobras into service as quickly as possible, or pull completely out of the Caskia Valley until the drought ends, if it ever does. There's one more possibility. Johnny said into the growing murmur of agreement. And that is, Zhu prompted. End the drought now, Johnny gestured to Gwen. May I present Dr. Gwen Moreau, recently returned from the mountains surrounding the Caskia Valley. Gwen stood. With your permission, Governor General Zhu, 
I would like to present the results of a study Syndic Moreau asked me to make a week ago. Concerning what? Zhu asked suspiciously. Concerning a proposal to break a pass in the Molata Mountains that would divert water from Lake Ojanti directly into the currently dry Kaskia riverbed. Jaw sagging slightly, Zhu waved her wordlessly to the table. Thank you. Gentlemen, she addressed the syndics, sliding her mag card into its slot. Let me show you how easily this proposal could be carried out. And for the better part of an hour she did just that, punctuating her talk with more charts and diagrams than even the botanist who'd preceded her. She spoke authoritatively and coherently, slipping in enough about the basic methods of tectonic utilization to painlessly educate even the most ignorant of the syndics. And slowly Johnny sensed the silence around the table change from astonishment to interest to guarded enthusiasm. For him the changes went even deeper, as his mentally superimposed image of Gwen the ten-year-old vanished forever from her face. His little sister was an adult now, and he was damn proud of what she'd become. The final picture faded at last from the Comboard screens, and Gwen nodded to the syndics. If there are any questions now, I'll do my best to answer them. There was a moment of silence. Johnny glanced at Darl, bracing for the attack the Comité would surely launch against this rival scheme, but the other remained silent, his look of admiration matching others Johnny could see around the table. "'We will need more study, if merely to confirm your evaluations,' Zhu spoke up at last. "'But unless you've totally missed some major problem, I think it's safe to say that you can start drawing up detailed plans immediately for the precise fault-line charge placements you'll need.' He nodded to her and glanced around the table. If there's no further business, he paused almost unwillingly at the sight of Johnny's raised forefinger. Yes, Syndic Morrow. I would like to request, sir, that a new vote be taken on Comité Darl's proposal, Johnny said with polite firmness. I believe the study just presented has borne out my earlier contention that our problems can be solved without the creation of a new generation of cobras. I'd like to give the Council a new opportunity to agree or disagree with that contention." Zhu shook his head. I'm sorry, but in my opinion you've showed us nothing that materially changes the situation. What? But, Governor General, Darl's voice was calm as always, if it would ease your official conscience, let me state that I have no objection to a new vote. His eyes met Johnny's and he smiled. In my opinion, Syndic Moreau's earned a second try. The vote was taken, and when it was over, the tally was 11 to 7 in favor of Darl's proposal. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Gregory Frost, Mona Lisa Foster, Marisa Wolf, and Howard Andrew Jones, and we welcome you guys to Bain. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afshirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.